I am Norm Tennant. And I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Uh, what are we talking about this time, Nan? Today we are talking to Ken Curry of SolidMan.com about counseling men and about the idea of son-husbands. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad I could do this. Well, Ken, I, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. I found out about you, honestly, just a couple of weeks ago because you and I both are alumni of the 21 convention and mm-hmm. we both are believers, right? right. So, <laughs> uh, so it was really encouraging to find another person who had gone to 21, which is you know, an expressly secular conference, but still uh, a conference that's speaking to uh, the needs of men and, and the, the concerns that I think a lot of people in the culture have besides the church. But it was very refreshing to find out um, or to meet another Christian that had done that. Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself, a little bit of your background? And I'd like to, I'd like to know how you ended up at the 21 convention. Yeah, that'd be a great question for sure. Because it's a journey as well, man. It's kind of a – because you're right. It's a, a – gosh, it's a crazy uh, – what do you call it? Organization. Um, so let's see a little bit about myself. I'm 59 years old. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Colleen, for 36 years. I've got three adult children. I'm expecting my grandson in a few days. I don't quite look like I'm expecting, but we are. We're going to have a, our first grandkid here shortly, which we're pretty excited about. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, boy or a girl, yeah. do you know? It's a boy. Boy, boy, boy you said? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, pretty pumped about that. Let's see, I'm a LMFT, which means Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist uh, in Colorado. I am uh, I live in Littleton, Colorado. Um, born and raised, born in Portland, Oregon, raised in uh, Washington State. Um, came to Colorado uh, early 20s to go to uh, what was then uh, Western Bible College. Now it's Colorado Christian University. Um, That's where I got my undergrad and my um, master's degree in biblical counseling. Graduated with uh, John Eldridge, right? Yes, yeah, that's right. We uh, went through the same program under Larry Crabb and uh, Dan Ellender. Graduated in 95. So, yeah, John was in the same uh, group that I was in. So, um, which I didn't get to know him very well, but he sure did make a lot of it since then so you guys are the christian manosphere before it was a thing right it might have been yeah Yeah. maybe so gotcha um let's see uh i've uh worked as a pastor um an associate pastor working with a single small group youth ministry different things like that um 2008 i uh went into working as a a clinician doing uh, counseling um as a licensed marriage and family therapist so and at that point, I really started streamlining what I did working specifically with men. And so um, working with men, uh, doing groups for men, uh, since then I've really created a lot of uh, content that my men's groups, the guys go through, the content, the, and I've translated that into some books and different things like that. Um, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. Definitely really passionate about the world of men and getting men to a really healthy spot whether that's personally or relationally, um, that's been a big passion of mine. So, 
Let me ask um, you a question before we yeah. hop into kind of the the counseling professional side of you. As a, sure. as a Christian, um, when did you? And this would be interesting for me to hear, especially given uh, your educational background. Mm-hmm. Uh, how early did you notice, or when did you start to notice that there was something going on in the church with men, something not positive? Um, you oh, not positive. Yeah, not not <laughs> like the things that like we now have uh, are kind of out of an incredible level. But yeah. you know, you've got a few, you've got a little more gray hair than some of us. And you've been around, and you've been around in where this conversation was. I mean, for me, I uh, I noticed that there was something wrong with the church right away. And I read John Eldridge's book, um, mm-hmm. While at Heart. And while uh, you know he quotes Maximus like it's the Bible, <laughs> right? Like a brave um, heart, the same. Yeah, way. brave heart, all the same way. And and so while I didn't really find a lot of his answers super compelling, the the problem he described. I could immediately relate. Absolutely. You know, and, and so it was helpful to me to, for someone to give me uh, at least direction and, or to remind me that I'm not crazy. So um, where, how has that journey been with you as a Christian in the church? Um, yeah, I didn't answer the question about the 21 convention and how I got there. We'll get to that later. Okay. But the whole thing of, uh, so if, in, um, if anybody's been around as long as I have, you were, especially here in Colorado, the, uh, a huge thing that happened here, late 80s, early 90s, was Promise Keepers. And I think for me, uh, especially the early 90s also, was a couple major books, uh, Robert Bly's um, uh, Iron John, uh, yeah. Sam Keen's Fire in the Belly. You know, those came out in the early 90s as well. So there's kind of a little blip on the screen where that was maybe the original Manosphereian thing where mm. men, it was like a little, men are trying to claim something. Um and so the whole idea of how promise keepers went about doing their things and um, and trying to gather men um, to reclaim something, um, but the way that they went about it, it just uh, it just didn't for me. It didn't do it because it was it. Gosh, I think maybe at that point the way that the church was, the way we do church, then it was just kind of a translation of how church is done into the big auditoriums and. Um, and it was good words, it was good purpose, it was uh, um, a very cool thing, but it just didn't hit the spot. And that's kind of what you're talking about, Michael, with how when I first read um, uh, Wild at Heart by Eldridge, it's like uh, something in there was, I mean, I'm with you, don't totally agree with where he goes with everything, but he He spoke to something about, um, I didn't need to be apologetic for being a man. And it felt like there was something inside of me with my church experience where I needed to be apologetic for being strong, for being powerful, for pursuing um, uh, being a strong father, um, a strong husband, strength. I, I had to, it was like, um, I knew I wanted to be strong. I knew I wanted to guide my family, but there was something about just the whole idea of needing to apologize for masculinity, apologize. And, and so it was really cool um, at that point to read Wild at Heart and just feel like, man, that gave me permission. Um, and so that was maybe the first. I don't. I don't even know if that answers your question. It's um, a good. It's a good. Um, it's a good comment. I mean, I remember I went to. Uh, so I became a Christian in 1997, and one of my early experiences was Stand in the Gap, was which was a Promise Keeper event in Washington mm-hmm. D.C. Um, the only it, it weirded me out. 
Very much so. <laughs> so, because I remember there was one point where we're on the mall, um, right there by the Washington Monument, and there's like now National uh, mm-hmm. Women's Organization protesting us. But I just remember that um, Tony uh, Black. Tony Evans, yeah, I was talking about Rocky a lot, and that resonated with me because I like Rocky. Uh, but um, but they wanted us to all hug each other, you know. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't know you, man. I don't want to hug you. Can we like do a fist bump or something? And there was a um, there was like an undercurrent. Like again, it was they were sensing something was wrong with men. That men needed a rallying point. They needed encourage. They needed strengthening. But they hadn't quite figured out kind of what I feel like the red pill has tapped into, and, and mm-hmm. maybe this next generation of Christian writers are starting really to get. Which is a old, much of its old ideas. It's nothing that new. But I I, I remember something not being quite right there. Um, so I guess that, that leads to my original question about you and 21 Convention. So how does a, you know, a Bible college sure. guy end up with all those degenerates down there in Florida? I know. I know. It's right. crazy. Crazy and beautiful. People keep asking me about that, so I'd like I know. to know. It's like, and that's part of the thing, Michael. It's just I haven't got a lot of inspiration from anybody who's trying to uh, really create something strong as far as uh, a strong masculine effort or definition out of the church world, out of Christianity. It just doesn't seem like it's, there's nothing super compelling. And, and it's diff, it's really difficult to hear that and to feel that. And so, man, I tell you, I, I, this sounds really horrible, but I was getting more out of reading some pickup artist stuff than I was out of a lot of the Christian writers, which sounds really horrible. You're they, among they brethren were, here. You're among they, they were figuring they were figuring out polarity. They were figuring out uh, masculine strength. They were figuring out masculine frame. They were it was all this stuff, and and whether it was the pursuit of getting laid or whatever, you know that's definitely in the level of debauchery and all this stuff and definitely out of the world that I would want to be in, but they were figuring something out that actually is really powerful. And so that is crazy how that stuff was resonated with me, resonating with me. Um, and the, uh, there were just a lot of the other things weren't, it just feels like the Christian church was, you know, the whole thing of celebrating mother's day and on father's day, it was just this hammer coming down. It was horrible, really horrible. And so I know some things are shifting, um, but I started to really read a lot of uh, different readers, a couple of my the ones that really did a lot for me. Uh, Dr. Robert Glover's No More Mr. Nice Guy. Great book. Um, yep. Yeah, and I've uh, actually did a lot of work with Robert um, to get I'm certified with his, ni- his nice guy stuff and all this. It's a great network that he has going on. Um, Dave Data's uh, um, Way of the Superior Man. Yep. You know, um, books like this, I, Dave, David Data's was, it was, that was probably the most important one that just said, hey, you don't have to really, you really don't have to apologize for being a man. It was just like, he just laid it out. Here's masculinity. It's good. And it was great for me to hear that. Um, and so then as I got to um, follow up with a lot of stuff, so I started following a lot of the 21 convention things. Uh, How many uh, years ago was this, Ken? Three years ago, four years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, three, four. It's been a journey. Gosh, since 2008, I've just been, I've been absorbing everything, just learning, um, 
if anybody's in Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram five. I absorb information. <laughs> That's what I do. And so it's like absorbing all this information over the years and then trying to put it into something that, that was uh, meaningful, definitely meaningful in my life, trying to give it to the guys that I, that I do my groups with and my counseling to really build their internal strength. Um, but the 21 thing, so probably two and a half years ago, I was listening to some of the stuff. And then uh, one of the guys here in town, Dr. Sean T. Smith, he's a psychologist here, not a Christian guy, great guy. Iron Shrink or something like that. Iron. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's his yeah, yeah. Twitter handle. Um, yeah, he's a. You read so he he. This guy's in the battle. This guy, man, he is in the battle against the APA, the American Psychological Association. This guy's gone going to battle for for us, and uh, it's pretty powerful. He's a good I guy. Really, he's not macho or anything like that. No, he's no. Really Sean well is like one of the best. He's really, really a good man. Good His character. take on hypergamy was oh I my gosh, that good. Is Very good so stuff, good. Yeah. Yep, a lot of good stuff. So um, after Sean taught, uh, I think uh, um, October of eighteen, I just uh, got I contacted him. We had coffee and hit it off like that. We it was it was great. Um, and so then shortly thereafter, then Sean said, hey, you got to have Ken talk at the uh, um, the fatherhood, the patriarch convention spring of uh, 19. And then uh, so I taught there. I actually didn't speak, but I taught uh, um, one of the workshops, the side thing. workshop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was such a good experience. Um, and then uh, I was invited to speak in October uh, of 19. And then I was all ready to go to speak at the uh, 22 convention to make Amer- make women great again. And uh, someone's and then, got you, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> so I was all ready for it because, man, I am speaking to women's groups all the time. One of my favorite. Do you guys know what mops are? Yeah, yeah. Mops. Mothers of preschoolers. Yeah, yeah. I speak at mops groups all the time and they love it. They love, because all they get is women talking to them, but they get guys talking and talking about how I love your husband and I'm holding them accountable for different things. It's a, It was a lot of fun. So I've spoken to a ton of women's groups. Uh, so it was no big deal. Sure, Anthony, I'll talk to the women. No problem. And uh, and then shortly thereafter, as soon as my name got up on there, I got doxxed. Some people were trying to get rid of my license. It was pretty horrible. Oh, man. I had to hire a lawyer. So it's like, man, this is a battle. It's it's the real battle to get to get the true narrative out there. What's the real story about all this stuff? Um, so then, of course, COVID hit. They uh, they moved it to October, um, and then this summer I got uh, diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. Mm. And so then, uh, so, so you didn't call it Benny Han or anything. <laughs> I don't want him to touch did, me there. You didn't make you. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking about you don't even want to hug, man. No, I'm, that's right. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's not the sort of healing I want either. So, yeah. It would have been great. It would have yeah. been great to be healed, but um, definitely went through. I had uh, surgery in uh, se- early September. Um, definitely healing, and I'm good, glad to say I'm cancer free right now, Praise which is God. pretty cool. Yeah, it's a good thing. Definitely healing up, but that I had to uh, pass on the 21 convention in October earlier this month. So mm. otherwise we would have met. That would have been then. really cool. Yeah. So I, one reason I'm excited to have you on this show is when you get into the red pill, the red pill uh, is a semester, maybe just a class, but at most a semester in college, it's not a degree, right? 
Uh-huh. Like there is way more to what it means to be a man than getting a woman to take her clothes off, right, and sleep with you. Absolutely. And, um, and matter of fact, uh, in Tyrannus Hall, which is kind of our men's group that we have for It's Good to Be Man that we started really recently, um, as I as I watch the guys share things, I think more and more, you know, the real questions is how do we uh, apply these things wisely? How do we take what God's made us to be, which is contained in the special revelation of Scripture, how do we take that and live it out in a wise way when it comes to leading our wife to resolving conflict, to leading our children, to dealing with different um, mm-hmm. sins and failings in our kids? And so um, you're the sort of guy that sits there and hears these situations that I think um, – I bet a lot of guys in our group don't know that the problems they struggle with are much more common and that there's hope. And, and you are in these groups with these men mm-hmm. as a family counselor hearing what they're going through. And so one question I have for you as you counsel men, what, um, t- just tell me a little bit about how you do your counseling and the issues that are coming up. Cause I'd like to open that up more because uh, guys are getting married. They are getting a woman and they're having kids. But uh, my experience has been that a lot of us are clueless bastards, but due to biological imperatives, we know we're supposed to get a woman. We want to have sex. We want to have a wife. So we get married. And then when we get married, masculinity and, and fatherhood's like a baton that's handed off from one generation to the next. And as we have a kid, it really comes home that we don't know what we're doing, right? Not really, at all. It, it hits us hard. We're like, mm-hmm. wait a second. I got this woman. I built this family. What now, right? And so you're the sort of guy that's in there uh, with people that have hit some point where they realize they need help. And I would love to hear more about your experience, about the counseling you're doing, and, um, and maybe the things that you find that help men the most. So. That's a that's a great question. Obviously, that's the gigantic question. There's somewhere so many places I can go. First place, I, I think when you're talking about that, all of a sudden here we are finding ourselves fathers when most of us have not been fathered well. I think that's a really powerful thing. And so, um, um, and and so you've got to go. Okay, so how do I do this? How do I be a father when I didn't necessarily have a good father or a father that really spoke into my life? Because most dads up to this point, it, it's it's really crazy if you if you look at where we come from in history. You know, uh, my dad's eighty eight. He was born in thirty two. That's the depression, right? And wow. so so you've got you've got a uh, you know our grandfathers at least our grandfathers. Have, were, went through the depression, and then shortly thereafter, World War II, and then another decade later was uh, Korean War, and then all of a sudden we're, we're into um, the Vietnam War. It's like one thing right after another, and so it's been a really rough go. I mean, we're talking about the greatest generation, right? And and you call them the greatest generation because they pretty much saved the world by crushing Nazism and and the the Axis, and so um, but when they got home, they were hurting. They were really hurting, and there and there's nothing that they could do. They, um, for the most part, and it was pretty much a generational thing. That it was a generation of men who were quiet, who did not use their voice, who did not say things uh, as clear as they should have to us. Um, and it was coming out of scarcity. Um, the the depression was a was a 
I mean, there was, you had to work hard. You di didn't know where your food was coming from. So many people were really hurting. It was a tough, tough time. And so this is the time when our fathers, grandfathers came out of. And, and so here, and so I don't, I don't sit there and go, wow, those little assholes, they weren't good fathers. And it's like, no, they were just doing their best. Every one of us probably could think of our dad and go, yeah, he could have been done a lot better as a father, but he was doing his best. And I think that's the thing. But now here we are, us, um, in a totally different world, the world of abundance. And now we can actually afford to be able to talk about our emotions or talk about what the heck's going on inside. That's We're a actually, great way to, place, uh, to put it. Now we can afford to talk about our emotions. When you're in survival mode. You can't. You there's can't. no way. That's, nope. yeah. Yeah, and so here we are, and we're expected to be able to be emotional. We're expected to be able to share what we're feeling. And the most important part of this, and I think it's probably the biggest thing that a father does, is a father's voice. And it's the voice of blessing. You know, the blessing of, I'm proud of you. I love you. I like you. You know, you're my beloved kid. It's the same thing. It's the father's voice when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If there's, if there's anything you're going to ever do with your kids— Think of that sentence and translate it into other ways, paraphrase it a hundred different ways, and then say those things to your kids every day, so this, those sentences. Because our voice is a father, I'm proud of you, I love you. Um, I said I like you. I think I like you probably is a little more powerful than I love you. Um, you know, you're going to rock it. You're going you're gonna to do great, you know. Um, just so many things that our fathers didn't say to us. Mm. Um, my father carried a lot of his own shame um, from his father. And so I, I was given a lot of crap about from my dad. Um, for some reason, he made me feel like I was stupid. And because I think it was his projection onto me because of what was going on with his childhood. And so he didn't tell me a lot of stuff that he was proud of me as much as um, even though he did, he did, gosh, it's, it's everyone, I'll sit here and I'm telling the story and it's like, there's this paradox or this, uh, what's the both hands, the, the um, ambivalence of, of the fact that my dad gave me some great things, but then he really missed the boat on a number of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all of our journeys. So here we are in a world where we're all men and we're growing up and a lot of us still feel like boys. A lot of us haven't been given the gift of, of what it means to be a man. And so we, and this is, uh, this is actually a, a concept from John Eldridge. He talks about the concept of we are now responsible to refather ourselves, to be able to use that language, to be able to teach ourselves what does it mean to be a man. And I think that's what is really, really powerful about all the information coming out in from the manosphere, from a lot of the writers. You know, what the heck is a man? How do we actually live this life in a masculine way, how do we do this unapologetically with a strong in a strong way? That's great. Um, yeah, refathering ourselves. I, I mean, part of the thing you see with a lot of um. So I'm Gen X. I'm born in 1980. I'm like the very end of Gen X. Um, but I noticed with the folks younger than me that they keep complaining that they didn't have any mentors in the church. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this that uh, I got to record a podcast on this, but uh, they're waiting for Mr. Miyagi. They yeah. imagine that this old Asian guy is going to like save them and train them in the way of manhood. But the reality is, is that you do have to refather yourself and yeah. you do. And it's, it's, it's rough. It's difficult, but um, it's where with the information we have, if you'll act on it, you can 
you can actually make a lot of ground. As make a lot of ground, especially with what you guys are doing with your group. And this is why I love groups. I love this, what you guys are doing. Um, one of the uh, Clint Hurdle, he's a, a major league baseball manager. I don't know where he is now. He used to be with the Rockies and then with the Pirates. Anyway, his, uh, he, tell, he told he, this um, concept, he called it building your own Mount Rushmore. And where every man needs their own personal Mount Rushmore, where there's two or no, there's four, there's four men who are solid in your life, who know all your shit. They know everything that's going on inside of you. They know your struggles and they're there to really build you up. And I think if that, if every guy did that and had a good, strong Mount Rushmore, we could all do this together and really build each other into some really, I think it would be pretty amazing if we were to do that. So what are you guys, what are the themes that are emerging? So you do these, you do these groups, or mm-hmm. you, at least you have in the past. Maybe um, you could tell us what are the, the major themes or issues that you as a sure. counselor, and certainly as someone with the pastoral impulse, what mm-hmm. are the things that you are seeing that need to be dealt with that, uh, that come up over and over again? Yeah, along with, uh, gosh, just the search for meaning, um, you know, coming into a midlife crisis type of thing and uh, different things like that, anger, um, different anxieties. Those are kind of the other ones. But the two big the two big things that the guys come to group, one is my relationship's falling apart. We're going to get a divorce. Help me save my marriage. That's probably the number one. Uh, no, it's probably about equal. The other one that's really equal is uh, I can't get rid of porn. Porn is just killing me. Um, or I got busted or something like that. And so, and I just can't stop this damn thing. And so um, those two things are the, probably the big reasons why guys come into group or counseling. Um, and, and it's usually, it's kind of odd people, people, I'll say this and they go, that's kind of an odd motivation, but most guys come in because they're very desperate. My life has fallen apart. I need help. Things are really desperate. Um that means that we don't, we kind of wait to the last minute to get help guys. And that's not wise. We need things start falling apart. You feel like, you know what? I shouldn't be doing this. This, this is not a wise thing for me to do. Like look at porn or whatever the heck else you're doing um, to just volunteer to get help before things hit the fan. That's uh, pretty wise. And so those two things definitely, um, But what I end up doing is one thing I've really found out, and this is a really important thing about um, uh, the porn thing. A lot of people in our our society call it sex addiction. And I don't think it is. Sex happens to be the context of the struggle. You know, there's naked women that you're watching on porn or whatever uh, online. Um, the, The actual thing that is underneath the surface is that I don't have a really good sense of self or I don't have a strong identity. I don't know who I am or I, I'm dealing with shame, shame uh, or toxic shame being that thing that says there's something wrong with me and there's something deeply flawed. And so what I do is I go to a beautiful naked woman to get that external validation to make myself feel good for a moment. And so I'm surfing the, the web trying to find that woman that's going to tell me that I'm okay. It's the classic Playboy centerfold. You know, if, you, if you've ever seen a Playboy centerfold, it's a beautiful naked woman and everything's perfect on her and you got to pay attention to where the eyes are. And the eyes are looking right at you, telling you, I want you. I'm here for you. And that's the whole point of pornography. The whole point of pornography is that 
I want you, but it's all digital. It's all fake. It's all um, a counterfeit, but it hits that spot because I don't feel internally validated. I don't feel good about myself. So I seek someone else um, outside of me. And we do this with our wives as well, or, or we do it with achievement or accomplishments or trying to live for the, um, the affirmation of, of other people. And that's that external validation. And so I think instead of sex addiction, I call it validation addiction. This is quite interesting to me because what you said before, um, I, I had a, a question about the comment that you made when it comes to the way that fathers have in the past raised mm-hmm. their sons and they've tended to criticize. And you mentioned how you felt like your father emphasized your failures more than your mm-hmm. successes. Mm-hmm. That obviously ties in with the idea of validation now, but it also makes me wonder what about the whole self-esteem movement of the nineties where you had this kind of, big push from parents and teachers to say the way to get children to be happy and successful is to just tell them that they're great. They can do whatever they want and all that kind of thing. So how does that tie in? Cause that seems like a paradox. That is a great question. Cause here's the thing. There is nothing that will give a kid a strong sense of identity except for the father's voice. Teachers can't do it. Moms can't do it. It's dad's work. And if so the, the self esteem movement was very mother driven, I believe so. And yeah, you think I mean, about it, it's very feminine. As yeah. teachers were doing it, it was like, "Hey, kids, you can do this." And and it's like it's weird. The, um, uh, a mom can say the same thing, but it doesn't have the same power as dad. It's the mm-hmm. father's voice is what creates. And and this is the thing that's really important here. Um, what I was talking about was how all these men are trying, they're externally trying to seek validation from women or other people. I think that's actually the whole pickup artist world and they don't even know it. Um, But the whole thing is it's, it's a journey to try to resolve what I did not get from my father. And that's in my identity. And my father, the father's voice is what creates a strong identity in the children. And so it's, it's not a self-esteem movement. It's, it's not, it's not self-esteem. It's, it's, gosh, it's something so much deeper. It's self-worth or self-value or, or it's just knowing that, that I have as a child that I, that I am beloved. Um, it's such a powerful thing. Um, but it's crazy. I believe the only one that can give that is the father. That's um, quite interesting as well, because one of the things that we've talked about in terms of households is that originally um, the way God designed the household was as a kind of existential unit. So the household is where you found the the crux of your existence and your meaning, what it it means to be you, who are you, who are your people. Um, And obviously the household, the head of the household is the father. So the household revolves around the father. So if the father is uh, in some way, either abandoning or just being kind of pushed out of that role, then the household itself loses a lot of that meaning. And obviously there are a lot of factors that went into that happening in the 20th century uh, with the rise of industrialism and so on. The the whole manner in which the household was perceived completely shifted. Sure. But the fact that the household could be this, it uh, could become a kind of place where it's really about self-esteem and about entertainment rather than a place where it's about existence and meaning and who you are as a man, um, what, what you are becoming. 
that's yeah. actually a, something which I think a, a lot more work needs to be done in understanding that, let alone figuring out how to recover it. But do you have any thoughts on how fathers can avoid the same problem for their sons today? So many of the men who are listening are going to have their own sons and they're certainly going to be asking themselves, you know, am I criticizing my son too much? Do I need to praise my son more? Um, is it just about criticism versus praise or is there something more going on? I think there's something a lot more about it. Um, it is, it's more of the, uh, and it's not, it's not just praise like, Hey, everything's great. It's, it's, uh, it is, I, gosh, um, how do I say it? Um, I don't know if I can actually answer that question necessarily. But it is. It's. I'll just answer by saying yes. It's a heck of a lot deeper than just um, praising, and and I think even the criticism, being able to pay attention to how I criticize, that I'm not a, I'm not criticizing their identity. I'm criticizing their behavior, and that's a totally different thing, a different construct. Well, this is actually a pretty natural point to um, uh, pivot, actually, because. When I was down at the uh, 21 convention, they had Jesse Lee Peterson down there. And, uh, you know, he's kind of a... He's, he's a character. Own, he's a character, all right. That's probably the best <laughs> way to explain it. And so um, I had to follow him at the 22 convention after he spoke to the women. And Jesse's thing, his shtick, I'm not deeply knowledgeable of it, but, uh, but I did notice that it seems to be that he likes to uh, bring up... Um, the damage that mothers can cause and mm-hmm. uh and it got the women really riled up and i had to follow him but then um so it got the women riled up but when i heard him present it to the men i caught the tail end of it and it almost wrecked wrecked men like the guys came out and they were like their thoughts were having thoughts right they were really processing like this idea that uh, they have a messed up relationship with their mother. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I, I tend to perceive things through the lens of patriarchy, through fathers and fatherlessness and bastards and all that. And I, I hadn't given a lot of thought to it. Um, I guess I had a fairly positive or neutral relationship with my mother in a very positive relationship with my grandmother, who was like a surrogate mother to me. So maybe that's why I'm not really sure. But the way it had like, man, things were connecting for guys, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that I, I was like, well, this is a bigger issue than I, that I understand. So I started to look into it, you know, and this was only a couple of weeks ago. And I, I discovered uh, one guy talked about the idea of son husbands, right? Mm-hmm. Where more or less, um, well, I, what, why do you think guys like Jesse Lee Peterson, when they bring up that, that concept, why is that connecting with men in your experience? And um, you don't have to use the terminology if you don't want to, but maybe you can help explain to those who are listening what, what the concept of a son-husband is. Sure, sure. I'll say this real quick. I think the, the thing that Jesse Lee Peterson kind of hit on with, uh, um, I mean, if it's the same concept with, as he spoke to women, but it really resonated with the men, it's it's we live in this really strange place where um, women are not used to being held accountable, and and so the whole thing of when you when you speak to women and hold them accountable, it, it really ruffles something, 
And, and so, and I, and Michael, we were kind of talking about this on the phone when we were chatting the other day before mm-hmm. this, um, the thing about the, uh, um, back in the sixties, there was this thing in the world of psychology and everything. There's this, um, concept called the schizophrenogenic mother and what that meant. And so the genic on the schizo schizophrenia, genic genesis like genesis the creator there's something about the start to schizophrenic schizophrenia came from mothers how mothers treated the kids and so the schizophrenogenic mother concept was um at one point in time and i do believe it's because of feminism was totally totally shut down and they said there's no way this could possibly be true we can't shame mothers like this by saying that your behavior actually might cause negative consequences in your children i happen to agree because schizophrenia is actually more of a mental illness not something that's created by the mom but there's plenty of other things especially as a family therapist there's a lot of things that are created um, by by what's called enmeshed relationships or fused relationships where there's too much. And Nan, you were talking about the whole thing of uh, um, the the concept of how the family is built uh, with meaning. Um, I forget the other word, meaning and what were you saying? Existential. Ex- yeah, ex- right. And so the whole idea of what's my existence all about or what is my identity? Who am I? And, and the, the thing about the, the family, the main things that need to come out of that is, is, a, is a person, a child, being able to come out of there, being able to say, this is who I am, and be able to say, and this is what I want, or this is what I need. Um, and that's, that, that's what's called differentiation, which is different than the whole idea of um, enmeshment. It's just being able to have an identity. This is who I am, and this is what I want or need. And, being, and that child being able to use their voice to be able to say, this is what I want, and being able to say no, and being able to say, this is my opinion. Um, that is a really important thing that a family needs to. Um, if a family gave their kids those two things, this is who I am. This is what I need. Um, the kid's going to be just fine. That's mm-hmm. differentiation. So what happens in a lot of families is with the enmeshment is that the child or any other member in the family loses their identity. And in a sense, um, they're absorbed into the family system where they, they have to play a certain role. They have to be a certain way. They can't be who they are or they can't have their own character or identity. They have to change who they are to fit into the family system. Um, and every single one of us, if we look back at our family of origin, we probably could say, yeah, I had that role. I was a golden child or I was the scapegoat or I was the funny kid or I was, the, you know, we all had our, our little role in our family system to keep it all going. And, it, and then it takes us, you know, a lifetime trying to rebuild who the heck I really am. And, and kind of moving away from my family of origin role. So what happens in a lot of families um, that have an enmeshed system, and the enmeshed system often happens um, with either a, a family that has a weak father, absent father, um, or the mother is the predominant um, one who runs the system, um, where the mother will do what's called absorbing. Not, not a lot of people talk about the word absorption, but in a relationship, there's two great fears. There's fear of abandonment and there's fear of absorption. And absorption is this thing where I'm absorbed into the system and I lose my sense of self or my identity. Actually, it's kind of the, the, um, 
why horror movies that are zombies, the zombie horror movies are all about being absorbed and losing your sense of self. You know, they're all just wanting brains and, you know, and they, they will go, oh, there's Mrs. Smith, our neighbor, but she's not Mrs. Smith anymore. She's a zombie. She's been absorbed into the system. Or if any of you guys are uh, Star Trek, the next generation, uh, if you know anything about that, Borg. The, the Borg is the classic absorption model where it goes in, totally absorbs a whole culture, a whole planet, takes all those people into the Borg and they all lose their identity. And they don't have who they are. They lose their name and they get a distinction like seven of nine. Of course, she happens to be hot, if you remember, but that's on the side. But the whole thing of the um, you lose your sense of self, that's that's what happens in a, in a family that's uh, enmeshed. And to what you're talking about, Michael, the whole thing of when there's an absent father, um, oftentimes there will be... Um, uh, what's called a surrogate spouse. You called it a son, father, no, son, husband. Mm-hmm. Son, right? husband, yeah. Yeah, officially it's a surrogate spouse where the the kid, the little boy, is now a surrogate to the husband who's not there. And now he has to carry the emotional weight of the mother. And the mother, um, and they call it. they also call it emotional incest because this kid has to carry a hell of a lot of weight of her identity, of her problems, of her emotions. And um, it's a really, really tough place to be. And actually, there's quite a few men that have to struggle with this. And, and so when I say struggle, it's like this is, you have to come out of a relationship like that and actually try to discover who you really are. So um, that's because, my question, actually, because sure. after I, after I started to process Jesse Lee's um, inappropriate use of scripture made me want to write him off. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that he interpreted. I heard him quote twenty scriptures wrong, <laughs> like in a row. But then he says this, and these guys, like you look at them, and they're um, supposedly they saw a ghost. It was like this realization, something hit him really hard. And so, and, and they're very different men too. It was like, it was really crazy how it affected them. So I, I, I you know, I'm away from my wife and my many, many kids. So I, I took a lot of time to kind of think about it and pray about it and read on it and think on it. And it, it started to make sense to me. And I, and I recalled folks, I, I had known a guy who, I told him that he was in an incestual relationship with his mother without sex because he had described to me the way she behaved towards him after she divorced their father. Mm-hmm. And it was very disturbing to me to hear it. I was like, Oh, it is. That's like really messed up. She's telling you these things that she ought not. I mean, just, it's just inappropriate. Well, it's cr- it's right? totally inappropriate. It's crossing a very, very significant boundary. It's incredibly intrusive. And it's making the young, young man, young boy carry way too much adult weight that he's not ready for. And that's all. exactly who this young man, this, so this young man wasn't crippled by it in, in a sense, not in the way you would normally think because he went on to be, uh, he's got his doctorate. He's been very successful in one of the militaries. He's handsome. He's very tall, well-spoken, great guy, and but really struggled to get married and had a lot of um, issues he had to work through. And even the way he viewed women was, yeah. in my opinion, not healthy. And it's not often that I'm like, you should read Rolo Tomasi, right? I don't, I don't, I usually there's like asterisks on it, but I was thinking with this guy's like, 
Maybe. I think maybe that's what this guy, this is uh, the weird medicine that I have to use on this one. Um, so it really, it really uh, resonated with me that this is a bigger problem than I had given it. And so I guess like um, with, when you're talking to guys, uh, obviously you've seen this in your practice at some level, if I have, um, like when they, how do they begin to realize this happened to them? And more importantly, um, what, what sort of, uh, what's the pathology that this follows and how do they deal with it? Does that make sense? No, I don't. What do you mean pathology? Well, I guess, I mean, like what sort of problems does okay. sure, uh, sure. Um, being a son and husband have and, and how do these guys start to, to overcome? For those that are coming from broken families without a father yeah. and have yeah. this destructive relationship with their mother, um, like ha- for the guys that are listening that are like starting to consider this for the first time maybe. like Yeah, um, let me say let me say this, Michael. The, um, the having in, um, gosh – Having a relationship with your mother that would be the classic um, surrogate spouse is is fairly rare that you would be fully embroiled in that. Um, it doesn't. And gosh, rare. What am I saying? Um, it's not rare enough. It, it happens too often. the The thing about it is, it's 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 a very spectrumy thing. So the the thing about it is that this happens. Um, to people, whether it's on a, a large scale where I had to do this my whole life or my whole um, my whole childhood or just a couple years um, or to a certain degree, or it might have been I might have done it for a while and my other brother did, did it for a while and my sister might have had to carry the load for a while um, because my mom kind of moved around with it. Um, but it's, it's just a crossing of a boundary where the mom thinks that I need, I need somebody to talk to. I need, uh, I need mama's boy to be able to, to help me out and all this. And so, um, gosh, every, gosh, Michael, every one of us has a story. If we stopped and and we all shared our stories of our childhood and our, and uh, the different things that I had to do to get through my childhood, we would all, some of us would have this, some of us would have a different thing that was played out. But I think the number one thing that that comes out of this is that I have a really tough relationship with women that, that I either, either I objectify them or I don't trust them or, um, or I'm seeking their validation, or I want that same kind of relationship where I rely on them and, and, I'm, and I'm willing to give everything and be super vulnerable and, 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 and just be uh, that, that nice guy that just really um, carries that for them. So, and I'm not a hero. How do they take the form of a oh, hero? The, maybe not the hero, but the rescuer is the rescuer. Okay, yeah. is more accurate. How would you make uh, a distinction between a hero and a rescuer? Then, um, great question. Um, rescuer is, is just taking somebody in a really bad situation and who might have a really horrible, um, circ- not just circumstance, but horrible character and, and be able to, I can, I can fix her. I can rescue her. The hero is, is pretty much, I'm just going through life, um, fixing things and, and, and helping people out. Um, just gosh, you, the way you're asking that question, maybe there's a lot to it that they might be really similar in a lot of ways. Maybe there's not a lot of distinction. I guess the hero wins, right? <laughs> With a rescuer, it's more like his job, maybe. It's his uh, job, I don't, I don't and, know. and he always ends up he always ends up losing big time. One guy I talked to, it really occurred to me that he was describing to me the relationship he had with his wife, and it was a very 
bad relationship and she was just a broken woman with many, many problems mm-hmm. that he was willing to put up with. Ones that were like legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, right? Like mm-hmm. he would have been, he, any church would have allowed him to divorce. Um, even the most conservative. And I kept thinking like, why is this guy, guy in this relationship? He explained it to me and I didn't really understand. And then he was sat through that session with uh, Jesse Lee Peterson and he's like, Oh my goodness. Right. Like that describes, and I started to think, okay, I get it. I get it a little bit. Like you have to come in and, and be the sort of emotional. um, Here, you want a really bad term? Yeah. Let's hear it. Emotional tampon. Oh yeah. That's a rough one. I get an argument with my wife um, some time ago and said that and deeply regretted it. I won't. <laughs> I, I want all the men that listen. To it's good to be a man to know that even we sometimes say things that were like that was <laughs> a big mistake. Um, but well, so we. So you do solid. Tell me a little. Uh, tell everybody a little bit about Solid Man, the process sure. you take guys through. Tell us a little bit about your website. Yeah, so the the reason I picked that is my branding. The one word that if uh, back in a few years ago, I'm like, if there's one word that describes what I think a man should be, it's solid. I think masculinity is best described by that. Just being a rock, having strong frame, having strong integrity, having strong character, it's just solid. And and you know that when you say, you know, my friend's a solid guy, you know, you're giving them an incredible compliment. So I think that's the reason why I chose that is because that's, that's what I want to move my men to is being solid. Um, and it's kind of fun because the feminine word is women are fluid and, and, uh, and it, there's so many different things with that polarity. It, it's pretty fun to play with, but, um, but the process that I take the guys through as they're working through their stuff, probably the most important thing is that initially it's, it's moving through a concept of considering being externally referenced versus internally referenced. Where externally references, I'm living for the approval of men. I'm living for uh, achievements. I, I get caught up in all kinds of different counterfeits or um, you might call them addictions or I, idols would be the biblical concept of these are things that I'm seeking to try to clarify my own um, lack of sense of self to try to make myself feel better, trying to seek these things for life. When actually the place where you're really going to find your sense of self is with your identity in Christ who God made you to be and who God sees you to be. That's where your identity comes from. Mm. And most of us, and this is kind of the crazy thing is there's a lot of Christian men out there who don't have a strong identity. And and it's like, that's actually right where the center of the gospel is, is, is who are we now? Who are we? And it's like, that's such a great question to be able to go, this is who I am. And I have that strong sense of self and I have the strong identity and, um, yeah, I'm trying to think. So the whole idea of that internal validation or the internal frame of reference that I can that I can trust my heart, I can trust my soul, I can trust, I can seek wisdom from my internal processes, and 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 it just so happens that God does share that He's inside of us, and so that He's part of our internal world, and it's pretty dang powerful. And so becoming more internally referenced is one of the biggest shifts because when we live externally referenced, we're trying to seek all this kind of stuff. And that's a really, really big thing where a lot of problems really uh, happen to men. So that's probably the biggest shift. Um, and then just really, I think probably the, one of the m- most profound things is, is uh, 
Gosh, I keep talking about identity because it is a really powerful part of this whole journey of, of really gaining a true sense of who you really are. So, yeah. so you wrote, um, if I'm not, is it three books or four? I got four so far. And and they're all part of the solid man process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, it's, I've, I've just taken I've taken what I've uh, um, the the process that I take all the guys through. I've just taken the material and content that they walk through, and I just put it into books. And I got them right here. These are the these are my fancy books here. Nice. So. They're all available on Ken, uh, They're all available on, um, on Amazon. Amazon, I noticed, and most of them look like they're in Kindle. Yeah, they are. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and it is. Yeah, I just took the material and that I uh, teach my guys and put it into books, so more guys can have access to it. Yeah. Well, where's uh, where's some places that uh, people can find out more about your um, your ministry, the different things sure. you're doing? Where would where should we point them? Um, solidman.com. That's probably the biggest thing. And right now it's all, gosh, it seems like I'm always trying to figure out this stupid uh, technology stuff. I, I hate the website stuff. I am, I am not good at all that stuff, but um, some people are helping me to try to get it better. Um, and then everything's kind of changed, especially with my practice because of COVID and everything. Everything's Everything has seemed like changed. It's really kind of crazy how doing so many Zoom calls like this and it's it's pretty insane, but yeah, solidman.com is a place to get more information. And um, I'm my email is ken at solidman.com. If you got anybody wants to interact with me and has more questions after this, that's totally cool. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. I hope that you have been uh, an inspiration and help to the men who are listening. It's been very helpful for me, especially. And for everyone listening, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. <laughs>